Welcome to the Lateral Dialogues, a podcast series by the Lateral Space. Podcast episodes that will bring you different perspectives on team and leadership dynamics. The Lateral Dialogues will inspire those leading, being part of, or coaching and consulting to today's organizations. Welcome to the Lateral Dialogues. My name is Petro Soratis. I'm the co-founder of the Lateral Space, a consultancy that focuses on organizational and team collaboration. I will pass it on now to my colleague, Varden Hoffman, uh, to introduce this month's topic and our guest, who we are very excited to have with us. Thank you, Petros. And indeed, we're very excited uh, because in today's podcast, uh, we will focus on self-doubt in leadership, often referred as the imposter syndrome. And uh, that's a topic that I think we come across a lot in our practice uh, and to be honest, also come across quite often in uh, in our own feelings. It's very interesting from, from both sides for, for us today. With us today, we have Dr. Veronica Azua, an executive coach and organizational psychologist who began her career as a psychoanalytical psychotherapist in Argentina, uh, where she was also born and raised. Her leadership development and coaching career started more than a decade ago at the London Business School, working with EMBAs and MBAs in London and Dubai. Her last role prior to her current capacity was to lead the design and delivery of leadership programs for partners and directors at a well-known consulting firm for more than six years. I'm very proud and curious to sit with her on the table today. Welcome, Veronica. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yes, and in framing the topic of today, uh, Veronica, could you maybe say a few words as as how how we can think about the Im- imposter syndrome or dealing with self doubt and self criticism in in leadership? Right. Yeah. So I think perhaps I can share as part of answering the question, I can share a bit about how I came across these patterns. So over the years, when I was working with this group of leaders or so different groups of leaders in different uh, industries. There was a key pattern I noticed over time, and this was self-doubt and self-criticism. And what was interesting was that the contrast between how accomplished these individuals were and how how much they were doubting themselves in the intimacy of the coaching session. It was that contrast uh, what led me to think about, well, this is such a strong pattern that it's worth exploring in a PhD. The idea of studying a PhD while working wasn't, that was not a good idea, but it, it, was, it, it was very <laughs> fruitful. It was very fruitful uh, at the end. Just to clarify, we hear a lot about imposter syndrome, but actually what's behind imposter syndrome is self-doubt and self-criticism. And perhaps the core of the issue here is self-doubt and self-criticism. The definition of imposter syndrome is not mine. I wish it, I, would, I would be credited for it, but it was <laughs> defined in the 70s by two American psychologists. And it was, it was defined as the inability to internalize accomplishments or successful experiences. Individuals that, despite of their success in life and career, they feel that they're going to be tapped on the shoulder and say, you know, who are you to be here? Or you're, you're a fake, you're, you're faking this and so on. You're not, you don't deserve to be here. While that is still relevant, I think over the decades, the research has, has evolved and it's not just the individual, it's also the context. And, and arguably, some, depending on the circumstances and the individuals, some people might feel more of an imposter than others, like, I don't know, in um, deprived back, people from deprived backgrounds or women might feel more inclined to, to feel imposter. 
to feel like an imposter. While before, decades ago, it was purely seen as a, as a female. So it was particularly, the research was particular around women in academia. So, so the, the research has evolved and it becomes a bit wider. But yeah, it's, it's being called imposter because you are, it seems that you're faking. You're faking it. You're not, you don't deserve to be where you are. And I could imagine also research evolved, but also the times have evolved. So in the 70s, uh, maybe certain groups like women might have felt more, or experienced more. There might be more of a minority at the time as they are today. Our times have also changed, making this more relevant or experienced more uh, by other groups than then. Yeah, and I think times have changed in a positive way. I think we are, all of us, we are talking much more about it and we are realizing that it's not just the individual personality traits or uh, mindset, but it's also how the context push imposter syndrome on certain individuals and not others, depending on their background. In your research, how did it show up? What, what could you see actually when people were, well, maybe suffering from it or, or working with it? Um, I guess the bad news is that you see a lot of consequences and a lot of signs of self-doubt and self-criticism. But, but usually I mentioned the just three that are the ones that I see most, most often, let's say. And that one has to do with our own sense of self-worth, the way we process information and unbalanced relationships. And this is some of this is really a lot of my research and some of, some of this is building on previous research as well from other studies. I'm sure it's not a surprise to anyone that if we are very self-critical or if we have a self-critical mind, our sense of self-worth goes up and down. And sometimes that is manifested in the question, am I good enough or not? Usually the result of that is that people tend to work harder to compensate. So I'm not feeling good enough and I work harder to compensate. And, and as a result of that, arguably, we end up in negative stress or burnout. It's a bit of an equation that is building up here. You know, we start with self-criticism, then we, our sense of self-worth becomes a bit ambivalent. We work harder to compensate for not feeling good enough, and then we end up uh, burning out. I can also understand the difference between self-doubt overall and imposter syndrome. So what you describe now, it's a circle that starts with the self-doubt, and then it gets actually internalized with, you know, I feel I'm not good enough, so I have to work harder. And that cycle that is internalized doesn't yield something positive for me as a positive experience, doesn't make me get out of this circle, which could say makes me also feel like an imposter because I feel, you know, I'm a fake. Uh, but I was thinking also then maybe if the self-criticism or the self-doubt, if I don't want to internalize it and I want to, then I can start finger pointing and more aggressively take it out of me and say, you should work hard. <laughs> you see what I mean? You should work. So then I don't have to feel like an imposter. I can just get rid of my self-doubt by blaming others. And that's where maybe it doesn't manifest as an imposter syndrome, but it does manifest as, is that something that is a right thought track or how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. That's spot on. Because if we see self-doubt in a continuum, on one end would be the, the crippling self-doubts, the self-doubt that are paralyzing and detrimental and not very helpful, really. And on the other extreme, that I would say will be perhaps somebody like Trump, right? Like Donald Trump, like who disown any self-doubt. Uh, arguably, some people will feel some self-doubt and deflect them and try to remove any self-doubt. And project them onto others uh, or project them into the organizational. As you can see, neither of the extremes are very helpful. 
but the person who internalizes it is more in touch with those feelings, where the, the other person is not at all in touch with those feelings, but they are still there. Yeah. So usually this, this you know, conversations that happen a lot in the coaching session, I'm not suggesting that we have to disown the sense of self-criticism. That wouldn't be, as we just discussed, uh, but being able to own it in a balanced way, being able, without exaggerating the negatives, but without disowning what went wrong you know, if there are errors or whatever shortcomings. And then I think in the two extreme cases that you describe, at least if we are an imposter, we have possibility to access it and own it and maybe decrease it. But if we don't feel it at all, maybe we don't even are aware of the consequences. It's painful to be in touch with those feelings, right? It's painful to be in touch with what we think it might be, you know, our, our own shortcomings or... Whether it is their fantasy or reality, but is 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 it painful process? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I can remember if I if I relate to it uh, myself, I can remember especially when I in my role in in corporates, I recognize quite a lot of this kind of self doubt, work harder, self doubt, work harder cycle, yeah, where where it not only made me very insecure, but also work very hard and very keen on what other people wanted me to do. Actually, so I created a very good antenna, and then I, I tried to please actually other people in the perspective. When I read through your research, I think what was also very opening for me to read is, is where, where it comes from, this cycle, where it starts, actually, eh? what, what the origin of it is. Could you share something about that? Because I think that's very interesting to, to understand. Yeah. Just before we move, because you just touched on it, the idea of pleasing others, you know, self-critical thoughts make us compensate, work harder and try to please others. And if that happens more chronically, if that happens for a long time, then the result is that there's very little space for movement for the self. You know, for you're, it's, very, it's, it's a very restricted self, right? We end up with so little movement and no wonder why then burn out and so on. So it's important to give oxygen, that sense of, a sense of self that has to have space for movement and oxygen, right? Now, so the question of our ori origins. So, so I usually ask this question to the audience. So what, where do you think it comes from? And depending where you ask, in what country, you know, what, who is the audience? If you are in Argentina or potentially maybe in New York or certain areas in the US, they would say parents, of course, the parents, right? Uh, if you ask another audience, you know, other nationalities, they wouldn't give away their parents as the reason or the key factor in in having self-doubt. So given my psychoanalytical background, it's unavoidable to say that we have to go back to the, the early years. So, so the quality of the voices, of those inner critical voices, would, would depend a lot, not entirely, but quite a lot from the early years and the authority figures in our life earlier on. But typically it would be the main caregivers or the parents, but also, I don't know, the teachers, the priest, an older sibling or whoever was an authority figure when you were growing up. And this is really important because depending on the, of the quality of those parental relationships and how we internalize those authority figures, that will have an influence in who we are today as adults and who we are today as leaders, how well we are able to take a role or not, because those internal voices can be enabling and encouraging or disabling and discouraging. So I guess you can start seeing now the the potential for things to go more of a, an imposter or non or non an imposter. Yeah. 
Very interesting, Veronica. Maybe then it's also helpful to say also what I understood from reading some of your research was the choice of looking at specific moments where in life or career that this shows up and you called out the moments of transition as maybe is a more heightened moments of this manifesting itself. Could you say also a little bit more around how can one experience that throughout life not only its origin, but also when does it get heightened then, you think? Yeah, the transition bit is quite important to explore. Specifically, I study how self-doubt impacts on leaders at the point of transition. And the reason why I say at the point of transition is because I noticed that one of the key patterns was there were other in the when they were experiencing self-doubt, they were either in the run out of a promotion or right after a big promotion or taking on a big project, a big client that was uh, significant, a big stakeholder or, um, I don't know, a multimillion pound worth contract or so on, where the stakes were really high. Um, and also I've been working a lot in maternity coaching, so maternity and paternity coaching and parents who have been away from work for maternity and paternity and coming back. And that is just that big transition. So any big transition seems to, seems the time when self-doubt start to creep in. What do you think then is happening to us when we go through intense transitions? And you, you spoke also about they can be life-changing, those transitions that you call out. We can assume it's very logical when you hear this, but when we are in intense transitions or life-changing moments, this self-doubt comes up. But could you say maybe a little bit more, what is the maybe mechanism behind that? What triggers that? The assumption is that the unknown of going into an environment with, when, when it's unknown and when the expectations are assumed to be really high, we fall into the uh, in, into the habit of oh, just who I am to be here. Like, uh, am I entitled to be here, and and so on. So it's a, it's this combination of unknown, so that what I used to have in order to rely on is no longer there. But then I'm also you say if that is combined with unrealistic expectations, perhaps uh, that I should actually know. Is that how then it's sort of like an amplifier of this experience? The expectations here are key. So because this is an, an unknown environment, we don't know enough about the, the, the new job, perhaps, or the new organization. We assume that high expectations usually in our own mind. This is why a lot, a lot of the work in the coaching sessions is about, so what's your role really? What's, what is really expected of you? And you will be surprised how many people having, you know, months in the job, they haven't perhaps sit down with the boss and say, okay, so what? It's just, sh shall we, in addition, you know, I, I got the job description, you know, or sometimes they don't, I don't know, but just shall we clarify what, what are the expectations? And the surprise is that, oh gosh, they didn't expect this and this and this and this and this. But it's really important to have that boundary between what are my expectations about the job and what is the organization's expectation about the, the job? Because otherwise you're being left with your own self-critical voices. And I could imagine also in that phase, it's also a reality test of those expectations as well. So, so you know, we might have dreamt of, what this role could do, for example, both if you are in it and if you are hiring for it. But 
if we don't, in that very critical period with new, fresh, open eyes, check what is really possible, we might never be able to properly assess what can be done. So then if the filter is self-doubt in this and exaggeration of that, as you say, working much harder or, or raising my expectations of myself even more, I think we can't even do this very important initial assessment of how am I going to lead in this role or, or you know, deliver in that sense. Have you experienced that also with your clients or people that are in transition then? Yeah. So two things that emerge from, from listening to what you were saying as well. One is the persecutory anxiety. If you, if you don't clarify the expectations, you're being left with a lot of persecutory anxiety and you're on, you know, in a critical thoughts. They're coming to get me. They're coming to get me. I'm just, the expectations are so high. How am I going to manage this? By just having a chat with your boss and just clarifying those boundaries, it kind of the anxiety goes down, right? Like, it's just like, okay, it was, it's just much more realistic, not this kind of crazy piece of work, right? That triggered me. They're coming to get me. So as if other people trying to make you fail or something. Did I get, it was the uh, prosecutory anxiety. And uh, I say it because at the start, you said something very interesting. And I think we didn't dive, dive into it yet. Uh, so there is like this individual source, but there is also kind of a contextual source. Could you maybe say a bit more about that? So, so how does the context, how does maybe the systemic part of, of organizations connect to, to this? Initially, my research was think, you know, looking at the individual, analyzing the individual, the origins, as we discussed, the parents and so on. But as the research unfolded, you start paying attention to the environment where these leaders are operating. And while these individuals are very self-critical, the environment where they operate is quite critical. It's, it's, quite, it's quite demanding. So these individuals are self-demanding. So they are, they are demanding, they are having high expectations towards themselves and, high, and have high self-demands. But also they enter organizations that are fueling those self-critical thoughts and demands. So organizations who, who push for more, who ask for more. And a lot of the times organizations have unrealistic objectives. If you work with anyone who works in sales, you know, or partners from any advisory firms, that usually the, the targets are, are really unrealistic. And it's okay to be ambitious. You know, so, I mean, it, it, it sounds fun to, to drive forward and so on, but I, I think maybe we should all agree that that's aspirational rather than realistic. Because otherwise, you know, we end up caught up in this vicious circle of my own self-doubt and, and self-demands plus the demands of the organization. And another point in this is that most of organizations, along with these unrealistic expectations, is this kind of superhuman qualities. Everyone could achieve that. You know, yeah, no, we can achieve that. When actually we're, we're only human, you, we're going to have some bad days. When working in organizations where these elite organizations, as many they call it, there's no space for having a bad day. There's no space for sometimes not meeting expectations because the, the reality is that, you know, sometimes you will be sick, sometimes you might have a bad day and so on. In these elite organizations also, you're lucky to be there, to be chosen, uh, to be seen for your qualities and your potential. And, and so you have to fulfill only maybe the best side of you day in, day out. And may maybe if you don't, then you, do you don't deserve also to be in an elite organization. 
this is one of the things that was really curious in my research because when I was interviewing the research participants, many of them were saying, oh, I'm surrounded by amazing people. So, you know, my colleagues are amazing. Or, and that, that word amazing stayed in my mind, that, that idea of amazing qualities, superior qualities. That led me to construct that idea of elite defense mechanism. So it's a good place to go, right? It's just, I would love to be in that group, right? But then when I'm in the group, then I'm realizing that is that unsustainable. It feels good for a while. Oh, wow, I'm one of those amazing people. And then immediately after you think, but that's, that's an empty concept. Could, could we then also say that this is maybe the reason why uh, it's experienced as something of myself as opposed to something that is shared? Like we all can doubt ourselves. We all can feel that maybe we are not going, you know, we, we don't know if we will make it, but we will try at least. Uh, but if we perceive this is not a quality of this elite or of a good leader or of a good performer, then it cannot be shared. I ask this because we all know this topic so frequent and that most people talk about it. There's so much um, uh, interest to find out more, but it's hardly talked about on a day-to-day basis. It can only be talked in coaching, in a private conversation. And therefore, I wonder if we, if we make it that some people feel it and some not. So it's very secretive, right? It's a bit of nobody wants to put their hands up and say, actually, I'm having a bad day today, or I'm not going to achieve targets today. It's just like it's unrealistic or, you know. Arguably, there, there might be some individuals that are inclined due to the, I don't know, personality traits or background are inclined to be the recipients of, of self-doubt. So they're not just carrying their own self-doubts, but somehow they are carrying the, the self-doubts of the system. The anxiety that comes with self-doubts, uh, there are some individuals that will be the recipient yeah, of those difficult feelings. Yeah, and I, I, it resonates a lot, actually, what we said the last last five to ten minutes. And I remember, if I if I can give maybe a personal example, I remember I worked with a, a department in a very innovative space. The expectations of this department in the innovation pipeline were extremely high, and also to find basically their 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 place. The department itself and the department head used to uh, refer to us as we're the champions league of this organization and we're the A players and uh, we will basically, with our innovational pipeline, we will fix basically the future of the organization, which created this huge anxiety in in the people around me, but also in me, because now all of a sudden... I thought to myself, I'm an A player and I have actually no idea what to do. So how, how, how should I, should I work with that? And it was very difficult to discuss. And also, if I remember back, it also became quite unsafe to be in that space. And people were trying to basically righteousness themselves. I don't know if that's a word by pushing down others. And it became this whole dynamic of people trying to save their face or trying to save their position. Does it sound familiar? What I, what I'm saying, if you look at your research. So a couple of words that came to mind, competition and survival anxiety. So the pressure is so high, the organization demands so much, and then they develop this ideal of, I don't know, this, the A-team or the super innovative that generates so much anxiety to hold that image. It's usually a tall order, right? That creates potentially a lot of survival anxiety, like in a jungle, right? And then the comparison and the competition were one of the key themes that emerged in my research as well, as a, as a kind of in connection with self-doubt and self-criticism. 
Yeah, maybe to say a little bit more about this, because it, this relates to what you said earlier on, uh, Veronica, that s- sometimes the way to work through unrealistic expectations or the experience of not knowing yet uh, what's best to do, you know, all, all of those spaces that are quite ambiguous, uh, at least temporarily on how to deal with, arguably they require more teaming up, more collaboration, more of exploring collectively than individually. But earlier on, you spoke about this not happening because I don't want, it should be my problem. It should be my insufficiency. So that's why I don't expose raising the questions in the first place. But then there is this uh, example of Arden that raises the question to see, you know, are others experiencing this or, but if that is being addressed with it's you or I am actually well on top of things, it should, it should be you, then it, it goes back to, you know, it's a vicious circle. So you can't really access resources of others. And it's sort of, yeah, we, we get a bit unstuck. So how do we move forward? You know, typically yeah. what self is, how do we move forward? The typical question that clients ask, right? Inviting the clients perhaps to own what belongs to them and push back what belongs to the organization. And a lot of this is through dialogue. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, you work with teams more than me. I'm just, you know, so it's being able to get the team together to, to talk to each other around those vulnerabilities or insecurities. And I would say, as I was saying earlier, it's great to have aspirations. If you want humanity and organizations to move forward, it's good to be innovative and have aspirations, but equally recognizing that in the process of achieving that, there will be errors. There will be bad days. There will be, you know, there is something that I noticed in my research that I interviewed leaders from different organizations. And in those organizations where the expectations were really high and there was no space for errors, it was really heavy. You were going into the organization, it was already feeling heavy, you know, that pressure. And organizations were perhaps a bit more um, entrepreneurial, where failure is part of the entrepreneurship, let's say. You say you usually say fail fast and so on. So knowing that error, errors and mistakes are part of the process. Those were what seems to be the healthier organizations. The learning or experimentation is is something acknowledged uh, as such. And I, I guess you're you're talking about two different needs that can be quite opposing. This dreaming more than we can, right? Because otherwise we stay stuck with the constraints. But on the other hand, is also not to make the constraints a taboo. That every time we raise them, it means as if we advocate for for less than what we can do uh, in a way. And and we do experience that polarity very often in working with teams. I also wanted to ask uh, Veronica. You said that I was thinking this belongs to a maybe earlier era where talking about only success or maybe highlighting too much the possibility as opposed to the constraints maybe was even a different era, I would argue, of organizational leadership. Maybe more 90s, I, I would argue. But there was also then later on this idea that we we come to have some sort of therapy sessions together, if, if you see what I mean. So so to talk about the when we messed up or when we failed. So so we've seen also those big spaces around that. And I wonder if there is some sort of space in between, because if, if we also perceive that we're just, you know, gathering as a ritual just to become vulnerable and we don't do much without vulnerability together, whether is, is this really a a good way forward or is it maybe cr- creating stress in the ones that are, you know, when we are ambitious, uh, that we that we will not make it. What is the right balance? I suppose is the is the question. 
I guess, creating the space to be vulnerable, but also seeing that as a, as a step towards, you know, moving moving on from, from, okay, we are all okay with being vulnerable, right? So what can we do about it? How can we, you know, um, that I'm saying this just, uh, this is not specifically part of my research, but as I, uh, in the day-to-day practice, how, how can we help groups or individuals move forward after they get in touch with the vulnerability, right? So a couple of thoughts that I wrote down so far, because uh, a lot of it is happening in, in myself, actually. But I, if I think, okay, there's this part of the imposter syndrome that's like it's individual rooted in, in your own self-worth and, and uh, lack of it, actually, also sometimes. But we also talked about the context being part of uh, this whole dynamic and how it can take you with it. And uh, then it becomes part of a bigger movement or part of a systemic movement. If we know this, then... What can we do about it? How can we work through it? And I, I know we touched on a couple of points already in the in, in the podcast so far, but uh, maybe it's good to deep dive that a bit. If, if if we come across this with ourselves or with an organization that we work with or the team, what are things, things that we can do to help yourself forward or to help an organization forward? Yeah, what, what are your ideas around that, uh, Veronica? I'm sure it's not going to be a surprise you that obviously most clients ask me so (laughs) we are so aware of imposter syndrome i'm so familiar with my own inner critic what can we do about it yeah the good news is that there are a number of strategies to to work on your imposter syndrome or your self-criticism most of the strategies at the moment are to do with the individual because as you were saying earlier is organizations as a system, they, they, they find it difficult to, to openly talk about it. So, so far, there's a lot of strategies at an individual level. You know, and I usually ask people uh, in, in conferences or in, um, in my own practice, when I give talks, what strategy works for you? And I've been collecting key themes and that goes from going running, uh, doing yoga, talking to friends and, to, you know, the day-to-day strategies, which are all, all good, you know, all positive. But I have selected from, from, based on my research and some other studies, I have selected five strategies. We, we don't need to go in order, but they are good strategies uh, to overcome self-criticism. And the first one is, is a no-brainer, develop self-awareness, right? So being able to, to recognize what, what are the patterns of thinking, feeling and behaving in yourself. And a big chunk of that has to do with exploring the past, which is the second strategy, but they are very much connected. And why is it so important exploring the past? Just as I say earlier, it's so important to have awareness. What were those um, early authority figures and how they became or not critical voices or encouraging voices or critical voices? And the key question here, perhaps, is what are the mandates of those critical voices? Where they're encouraging, where they're indifferent, where they're critical, and so on. This is really important to to explore that and at an individual level. And we don't need to spend a long time in the past. We can dip in and out and try to go in the in the past, understand a bit more what's happening. How is that impacting today? So, as as we know from uh, from psychoanalysis, developing self awareness self awareness and exploring the past then helps to dissolve the intensity of of those critical voices. So those are the very psychoanalytical ones. And then there are other strategies that that perhaps are not necessary from a psychoanalytical perspective, but are very, uh, you know, helpful. Some strategy has to do with perspective taking. 
needless to say that if we have critical voices constantly in our mind, we tend to feel drowned by those voices and we tend to lose sense of perspective. So things become bigger than they are. Being able to recover that sense of perspective um, is, is important. And that usually is connected with setting boundaries. You know, as I was saying earlier, setting boundaries perhaps around your job uh, and expectations or setting boundaries around your team, setting uh, time boundaries and so on. At the core of this is enabling yourself and allowing yourself to, to set the, those boundaries, to give yourself some space for maneuver, to give some oxygen to those encouraging voices. Uh, and then the last, the last strategy, which I think is one of the key strategies, is self-compassion. Self-compassion has, uh, it might sound like a fluffy concept, but it has two decades of research and it's proven to lower the sense of self-criticism and the anxiety that comes along with uh, self-criticism. Um, how, how we define, uh, it's not my concept, I wish I would be credited for it, but it's not my concept. Self-compassion is the ability to be able to be kinder and understanding towards yourself when facing difficult situations. Um, and it has different components. And one of the components is, is as, as, I, as we were all referring earlier on, accepting that life is imperfect, that errors and mistakes are, are part of life, that we are, we are imperfect as well. And that sense of feeling in the same boat, you know, <laughs> we, are, we are all here in the same boat. It lowers the sense of self-criticism. Sounds very helpful, Veronica. I was thinking as you were uh, talking about these strategies and a leader that I worked with came to, to mind where she, she was actually, I could see how actively she was working with some of her own self-doubt by thinking, what is the, what is the origin of this feeling? Not, not only in me, in my history, but in the organization. So she, she could immediately transform that into thinking about the team and the challenge and the organizational setup and almost getting into thinking, okay, I need to maybe do a little bit of more work on this part of the team and engage these other parts of the organization. So in, instead of, get, of getting into the loop of self-doubt, she was using her feelings into understanding where, uh, what is the current readiness and state of the organization, how, we can, how I can basically inform my strategies as a leader, which I think it's, it's, we can't access that assessment if we are staying with these very difficult feelings that I am not good enough and I should just work harder. But I, I think one to access that has to do all of those steps that you describe in being able to break down the patterns and to be able to understand, yes, it's something that came from me, but familiar to me uh, from the past, but actually I may not be the only part of the equation here. This is why it's so important, the coaching space, because the ability to verbalize this and to take a step back and, and think about the situation a bit more strategically in the sense of bringing a sense of perspective is bringing context to the situation. This reminds me a lot of uh, a situation of a, um, one of a leader that I was working with who had worked really hard to, to get a, a tender, a very competitive tender. Obviously, as you know, you're competing with, with other organizations and put a team together, international team, a lot of effort and so on. And they lost the tender. But what I saw in this person who I thought was managing self-criticism well was that he was able to say, we didn't win the tender, 
because of all different these different factors. It wasn't, you know, a person who is debilitated by self-doubt would say, oh, it was me, I should have done this, and this, the ruminating thinking, the unhelpful ruminating thinking start. Uh, and this, this, this leader that I thought was managing well his self-criticism was saying, actually, we did what we could. There were some, we could have uh, approached things in a different way, but overall, there were different factors. The market, the, uh, I don't know, just not personalizing it is helpful here. Not falling into the trap of it's just me and I'm not good enough and it's because of this and that. It's actually, as I was saying earlier, the ability to not, not over-exaggerating what went wrong without disowning what went wrong either, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and actually, when you were talking about the strategies, and, and of course, most of the strategies you set yourself are, are aimed to the individual, uh, as for like when this self-doubt comes from the context of an organization, it's the systemic part of the team, it's difficult to work on. But if you look at the different strategies, uh, develop self-awareness, explore the past, uh, take a perspective, uh, not personalize it, uh, self-compassion, that could also be true for a team, actually. If a team is able to explore where it comes from and what happens and is able to not basically internalize everything as a team and create a bigger perspective around the challenge that they're facing or part of the organization that they're part. And if they can also maybe uh, develop self-awareness in that and also see in the past, what is the past of a team? Where did it come from? I think that can be very helpful. And I think most of the strategies you described are actually maybe also an ability for a team to, to work on. And yeah to have basically as a solution uh, there. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, but you you are the experts in teams, guys, okay? <laughs> Just, but I was thinking about, I think it, this is this is really important. I was thinking about whether, because I do a lot of groups, so workshops, but, so the difference between working with the group as in getting the group working together better. And I work with individuals in a group, if that makes sense. <laughs> So workshops where the aim is not to to get the team working better, but each individual. So a lot of workshops I do are about imposter syndrome. And perhaps I didn't have the chance to how to apply those strategies for a team to work better. It's more about how the individual can do better. And the benefit in sharing is, is about sharing those experiences, sharing that, gosh, as we are doing now, gosh, you know, it's hard for everyone. It's not. You know, it's, I also struggle with, you know, or I doubt myself. And when everyone is saying, oh gosh, I, I doubt myself. And then they are surprised about each other. Oh, I can't believe that you are doubting yourself. <laughs> that brings connection. It's amazing how they, that brings connection. Yeah. And we recognize that quite a lot in our practice. Yeah? And, and uh, I think when we work with teams, we come across this quite a lot, actually. And if you're able to touch it, it can be such a relief for a team. Indeed, what you say, a lot of people recognize it then. It's a space where, you know, instead of maybe keeping it for ourselves or to project it to others and have this fight kind of dynamics to actually realize maybe we have a collective challenge that if we acknowledge that we are all in the discouragement phase or all maybe hampered by not having the achievement we wish to, all of these difficult emotions, if we maybe transfer it into something that we collectively should manage together as opposed to uh, hammering ourselves or each other, we can collectively then transform into action and into stepping stepping out of it. That persecutory anxiety that triggers competition perhaps or survival 
um, actions or and survival anxiety that triggers competition and how much if you if you bring that to the surface and you say actually at the end of the day we are all suffering and I know the word suffering is something that perhaps you don't use in in a corporation but I use the word suffering because it's connected with self uh, compassion self compassion usually says life sometimes is tough and suffering is part of life and perhaps suffering is a stress at work or pressure at work but when we are able to say, actually, you know what, we are all going through a, a tough time. So like, it's not just you and me. Uh, and as you say, just that, if you're able to voice that, then we are all working to, we can all get together and work towards the same aim. It's like the definition of enlightenment, I think, is the end of all suffering. There is a, a kind of a very Buddhist root in all this, like Buddhist psychology, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Veronica. I, I, I really enjoyed this, uh, this podcast, not only because the topic is very interesting looking at teams and the teams we work with and the people we work with, but also this is typically a topic that I also uh, feel part of and, and, and can relate to quite a lot. And so today we talked about self-doubt. We talked about the imposter syndrome, which is named so because you have the idea that you're the imposter, that people will find out that you are not good enough, that you are not the person they thought they would hire, that you're not the person that will fix all the problems for them. I think in the conversation, a couple of things came uh, came along. And, and one of the things that stuck to me was uh, that there's an individual part uh, that maybe is originated in, in, in things like self-worth, self-doubt. But there's also like a contextual part where teams or departments or even whole organizations are in a situation where this comes up. And we discussed that it, it mostly comes up if there are uh, triggers like like unknown big expectations or huge steps that, the, that you have to take as an individual, promotions or uh, these kind of moments where you have high expectations for yourself or from others. That's basically when, when this uh, shows up. We talked a bit of also where, where, where it comes from. And then also we came to the origination of, of that maybe also some pieces are in the past, in your own past, in, in how you dealt with challenges or how you deal with, uh, with, with difficult situations. And, and it also shows up in, in organizations quite often in, in groups and in, in people themselves. And then it can also trigger a sense of competition or safety or using certain words. That, that part I really like, using certain words as like, we're the A team or we're the best team, we're the Champions League, we're all A players. And I think when you see this happening in a group or when you feel this happening in yourself, that might be like the trigger for yourself. And hey, maybe there's something going on here that, that's close to this kind of self-doubt, work harder, self-doubt, work harder cycle. So the last part we talked about how to deal with it and a couple of strategies came forward and, and I like them very much. And, and so, of course, you have to develop self-awareness and it sounds easy, but I think by exploring the past and by recognizing the patterns where you're in, so basically step out of it for a moment, I think can be extremely helpful already. And when you're doing that anyway, and that's just the other strategy that, that, that stuck with me, was like to take perspective. Think about, okay, well, what is the bigger picture I'm working in? What, what is actually expected of me? What is my role in this? And is everything I tell myself, is it true, actually? And then you end up in like self-compassion, uh, where you can basically see and, and hold yourself also lightly that, that the world is imperfect. It is not all perfect, so uh, be imperfect. And the last part of the discussion for me was a aha that we thought, okay, basically these individual strategies, they also work with teams, they also work with organizations. And in the work we do, we come across this very much. So yeah, for me, it was a great half an hour of, 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 of thoughts, half an hour of, of ideas. So thank you very much for that, uh, Veronica. Thank you very much for your insights, your research, your time with us. Yeah, it was really nice to listen to it and to process it. 
We'd like to close, uh, Veronica, it's time with a question when we have a guest. What would be maybe a wish or an invitation that you have for leaders in organizations when they listen to this topic? That would be an invitation to to make it part of life, that this, you know, this is part of life. There's nothing wrong with making some things going a bit wrong sometimes. An invitation to care a bit less without being neglectful, but just care a bit less. Thank you very much, Veronica. It was very inspiring to have you here and to explore your research and your ideas about this topic. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm leaving, you asked me so really interesting questions and, and your comments left me thinking. I think. So I'm, I'm living energized and um, with a lot of new thoughts as well. So thank you guys. And thank you also to our listeners who were actually following this episode. We'll be happy to uh, hear from you if you have some thoughts or questions. And also if you have ideas about topics, feel free to reach out to us. Thank you very much and see you in the next episode. Thank you.